Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to Luke chapter 8, as we continue our exposition of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 8. And we will uh, consider this morning, as we continue along, uh, Luke 8, 22 through 26, Luke 8, 22 through 26. Now, after a series of discourses on the Word of God that our Lord has delivered to us, we now come to a series of narratives that demonstrate the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He has power over storms, He has power over demons, He has power over death, He has power over disease. And in every possible way, our Savior has everything that we need. He is a sufficient Savior. If His Word is sufficient, His power is sufficient as well. And that is where Luke is taking us. And we begin now in Luke 8, 22 through 26, as we consider this first demonstration of His power. Hear now the Word of God. These are the very words of life and the Word of God Almighty, inspired and infallible. Now, it came to pass on a certain day that he went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, Let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake and they were filled with water and they were and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. Amen. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, how we cheer to see the power and love of Jesus Christ in our text. Help the preacher preach Christ faithfully. Preach this text faithfully, Father. And so give him your spirit, the spirit of the Lord that recorded this event through Luke, May that same Spirit be in the preaching of the Word, that we may know the force of the Word of God and have it applied to us. And may your Spirit also rest on all those who will hear this Word now, that they may give glory to God for such a complete Savior as Christ, worthy of our faith and trust. And so, Father, we pray that unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, that the grace would be given, that I should preach among this congregation the unsearchable riches of Christ. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, in our trials, the Lord asks us, He asks His people, where is your faith? Where is your faith? The question placed in the Bible by the Holy Spirit was not solely for His very first disciples. It is a question for all of us. It is a question for each of us, especially in the severest trials of our life. When the storms of life beat against the boat of your life, so to speak, and you think, Lord, I perish, your heart 
is going to severely betray your thoughts and suspicions of the Lord's character. His care, His wisdom, His holiness, His power, His compassion on you. You're going to ask, does Christ know? Does He know what I am going through? Does He even care? Am I, I, I am so powerless against this trial, and where is God? I feel as though He is asleep and has taken His eyes off of me. But in such times, the Lord asks, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Where is your trust, child of God? Have you forgotten who I am? Do you trust me? Do I, your Savior, not have the power of God? And do I not also have the compassion of God? And do I not, in addition to that, have the sympathetic heart of a man, a fellow man? Where is your faith? The Lord inquires. Inquires all of us, of all of us today. And we must all be prepared to give an answer. So this question from the Lord will form our theme today. And we will consider it under three questions that are on your outline that arise from our text first question is, will we get there? Will we get there? The second question is the Lord's inquiry. Where is your faith? And third is the reflection of the disciples. Who is this man? Who is this man in the boat with them? So first, first question, will we get there? Consider verse 22. Now it came to pass on a certain day, that he, meaning Jesus, went into a ship with his disciples and he said unto them, and listen to this, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. Jesus has set a destination for them. He has said, we are going to the other side of the lake. Jesus says, this is where we will go. This is where we will be. And the question of unbelief really at the bottom of all of this that we're about to see is, will we get to where Jesus has said, we will go. Will we believe that we will get to the other side of the lake? And the question really, if you you would process that further and you think about all that could arise between the, the boat on this side of the lake and the other side, the question is, even if the devil and all his demons stood between my boat and the shore, will I believe that I will still get there because Jesus has promised that we will go to the other side? Will we perish before we get to where he said we will go? Would the disciples, in other words, walk, or in this case, sail by faith and not by sight in what they see? Uh, Would any circumstance, in other words, nullify Christ's destination? Let us go to the other side. Ultimately, this is the question of faith, isn't it? When perception collides with promise, What do we believe? We are to believe Christ's promise and not our perception. Beloved, Christ has, in every age, set a sure destination for his people. In every age, he has said, I will take my people to this particular place of promise. And in every age, if you read your Bible, which is quite large, the promise seems in peril and the people are called to exercise faith. Just consider the Exodus as we know it quite well. When he led our fathers out of Egypt and into the promised land, how many of our fathers trusted that he would get them where he had promised to take them? 
Far too few, friends. Far too few. Only choice men of faith like Joshua and Caleb. When peril collided with promise, these two believed the promise over the peril, didn't they? But the others, when difficulty came, they fretted over provision. They feared men who were like giants in their eyes. And they did not trust Jehovah would deliver them. But whose faith was vindicated? Joshua and Caleb's. Faith in the Lord is always vindicated. Faith in the Lord will deliver us. The promise comes to pass. And we will get wherever it is that the Lord has said he will send us. And so, believer, you are given a precious promise from the Lord. You're not as it were, sailing to the other side of a lake. But the Lord has indeed set a glorious destination for you. What has he promised to you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also, John fourteen three. This is the destination that he has set for the believer. And what we do is, as we, so to speak, sail on our way to the celestial city and storms buffet our, our life, we start to say, Master, we perish, rather than say, Lord, you will deliver me safely to heavenly Canaan. This is your destination, friends. If you know nothing else, you must know that if you are in Christ, that the promised land above, where your citizenship resides, where your treasure is hidden, that is the destination the Lord has set for you. The question is, do you believe you will get there? Do you believe that there is another side to the shore? And do you believe the Lord will take you there? That is the stuff of faith, to believe on the promise of the Lord. Well, the disciples, they had their destination. He communicated it to them. And then our Lord goes to the back of the boat in verse 23. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Now, was Christ lazy? No. He was tired, wasn't he? He was tired. You know, he had labored hard in the gospel ministry, as we saw as this chapter opened. You remember his relentless ministry in verse 1. What uh, was it described as? That he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. Our Lord, he labored hard in the gospel ministry. And as a man in his humanity, our Lord faced the very same limits that we all face in our human nature. He had to sleep. He had to recuperate and get some rest. And so, and we'll come to that in our last heading, but he, he, he turned to the back of the boat, and when he was asleep, that was when the storm arrived. There came down a storm of wind on the lake, and they were filled with water, waters filling the boat, and were in jeopardy. Now, this was real peril, wasn't it? This is a true peril. And his disciples, you know, boys and girls, right? They were fishermen, weren't they? Experienced sailors. If they could have traversed the storm, they would not have panicked as they did. But as it was so severe and their boat was taking on water, they knew they were about to perish. And as the sailors in Psalm 107.27, as we've been singing it this month, they were at their wit's end. Now in this, what can we learn? Though Jesus has promised a destination, he has not promised to you that it will be smooth sailing to get there, will it? 
Right? He has promised the destination. He has not shown you all the peril on the way there. He has never promised. In other words, it is smooth sailing to heaven. You will search the Bible and you will not find that promise. You will find many other promises though. What did he promise your journey to heaven will be like? John 16, 33. These things I have spoken unto you that in me ye might have peace. In the world you shall have what? Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Smooth sailing. No. Tribulation. The word means distress. In this world, you will have distress just as the disciples faced. We are often at our wit's end as we sail to the celestial city in distress. But why did he say that to you? Why did he reveal that to you? Why did he say that in John 16? Isn't it remarkable that you can be of good cheer and be filled with what? Peace. Peace. So that in the storms of life, you can sleep as peacefully as the Lord did in the storm. You know, with the faith in the Lord that is unwavering, an unwavering trust that he will take you where he has promised to take you, you can have such great peace. Why? As he said in John 16, 33, because he says, don't look at yourself, look at me. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Where is your faith? Is your faith in me? If it is, you can be of good cheer because I have overcome and I will take you to heavenly Canaan. And so you can be of good cheer in every trial, every distress. That's what the Lord says. Beloved, again, you need to condition your heart. Your journey to heaven will never be easy. Storms will cloud your journey. You may face earthly loss. You may have poor health. You may be abandoned by loved ones or abandoned by familiar friends. You might have seasons of wrestling with sin, and you can ask yourself, will Christ, will Christ truly save me, the sinner? You will face many such trials, and anyone who has been a Christian for probably more than a day can attest to that. And whatever these storms are, you will have to remember the Lord has ordained them as we remember Psalm 107. He ordained them, and you will have them. But as he tries your faith and your trust, you must never lose trust that he will deliver you. And in fact, your faith, right, that he will deliver you even as you wrestle with trials is actually a mark of assurance for the believer that you will make it. As you have faith in the Lord, that he will do what he has promised, then you have assurance that he will save you and take you to himself. What did you read of Abraham in Romans 4, the father of faith? And listen to this carefully and how we must have this kind of faith and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore what? It was imputed to him for righteousness. That is the substance of saving faith. To be fully persuaded that he will perform what he has promised. That is the essence of saving faith. And that is the believer's faith. That is why the Lord asked his disciples, where is your faith? Where is it? Why are you not persuaded that what I have promised, I will certainly do? 
So let's investigate that question a bit more in our second heading. Where is your faith? In verse 24, And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? Our Lord wakes up. When his disciples wake him up, he rebukes the storm, and then he rebukes his disciples, asking, where is your faith? Why the rebuke? You know, we have to ask that question. You know, on the face of it, it seems like going to the Lord is appropriate, right, isn't it? To go and pray to the Lord in distress is not a sin. In fact, it is called for, isn't it? We're to cry out to our Lord in our distress. That's not the problem. But there was something in their heart that was askew in their asking of the Lord. And so you need to observe this one truth, that you can approach the Lord in prayer, but still have an evil heart of unbelief as you come to him. It was not their fear of danger that the Lord reproved them for, because to be afraid of a storm is quite natural, especially a storm like this. But in their fear of the storm, they had lost their trust in the Lord Jesus And that is what he reproved. They were no longer persuaded that what he had promised he would perform. What do the godly sing in Psalm 56.3? What time I am afraid, what? I will trust in thee. You see, when we are afraid, and it is right to be afraid, that is when trust in the Lord is heightened. That is when we go to the Lord with greater trust. Rather than saying, Master, Master, we perish perhaps, you might ask and you might look, how will you, Lord, deliver us? We believe that there is deliverance from this, and I am looking to see how you will do it. Fear, though, for them had turned to despondency, and hopelessness had filled their heart. You know, it is often the case that our fear is opposed to Christ's promise. Uh, But given to us, the Bible says, are exceeding great and precious promises. And in our fears and distresses, rather than trust in the promises all the more to be more um, bullheaded, so to speak, by faith in the Lord, that the promises will come to pass, rather than having our curiosity stoked, how will the Lord deliver me? I am anticipating it, and I am looking forward to it. We fear We cry in our heart, all is lost, I perish and I'm doomed. So we are to cry to the Lord in distress, but with full trust in his promises. You know, even in misery, right, you remember Job. And you remember in his misery, he he could count on one promise at the very least, right? He would say what? If this is the only promise you can recall, you must hold to it with dear life. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another. Job 19.25-27 In the storm of life, then, you cry out to the Lord, but with that kind of faith, that if nothing else, even if I am lost right at sea, I will see God. That faith says, though you slay me, Christ, yet will I trust in you. Psalm 56.3 again, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. And in Mark 
4, which is the parallel text. Uh, at some point you might want to this Sabbath read Matthew and Mark uh, and Mark's account as well. In Mark 4:38 you find more of the unbelief in the disciples' hearts in their words. And these are our wounding words. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Do you see the unbelief there in their heart? It strikes at the very character of their lovely Lord. Do you not care about us? Do you not care that we perish? Not only did they not hold to Christ's promise, they did not hold to Christ's character and their, his commitment to them. You know, whatever they knew of the Lord at this time, and you can see that more is dawning even in the boat, they should have known at least this one thing, right? Whatever they knew of him, they knew that he was very compassionate. They had seen God's love in the man Jesus. They had seen the compassion on the widow not so long ago and his raising her son from the dead. They saw him heal multitudes. Peter saw him come in love to heal his mother-in-law. These men knew that he cared. They saw him spend and be spent for them and others. And the last thing they ought ever to have asked is, does Jesus care if we perish? Just, and so you can ask yourself this, beloved, just because he brings a trial to you, does that mean he doesn't care about you? No, not at all. But we are often like petulant children, aren't we? And we so quickly forget the love of Jesus Christ for us. In hard providences, we ask, Lord, why do you not care about me? And you might be too pious outwardly to say it out loud in the assembly, but certainly it's there in the heart so often. But this is the one question that ought never be in the heart of the believer. So does the Lord Jesus care? How do you know? Well, the Bible supremely shows us this his one act, right? And maybe in some level, the disciples could be excused a bit. Not really, but maybe we can understand a bit that they didn't see the fullness of what we have seen. You and I, though, have no excuse to ever say to the Lord, do you care about me? He gave himself for you, believer, and you have seen it. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Romans 8, 31 through 32. The Father gave you his Son, and the Son gave you himself, and the Spirit gave himself to your heart to testify of the love of God for you and the care of God for you. How faithless we must be to ever entertain the notion that the Lord doesn't care about us when he gave himself. All you have to do is survey Christ's gruesome cross to see how he cares Blasted with the unspeakable torments of hell, the wrath you are due for your sin to save you so that you can live eternally. And what's the word? Never perish. When you think, Master, carest thou not that we perish, recall the promise. I give unto them eternal life that they shall never perish. Neither what shall any man Pluck them out of my hand. John 10, 18, uh, 28. You are to say, I will, this is the promise of Christ. I will never perish because I am kept safe. 
Not by my skill, not by my strength, but by Jesus' hand. Believer, even if you die, even if you die, right? Even if you are on the boat and you are swept at sea, what is your death? Your death is the door to paradise and eternal life. Your death is the gateway to glory. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Psalm seventeen fifteen. So their dread of perishing revealed that in their heart remained distrust of Christ. And you must understand this, that this is why the Lord often sends trials into our life. It's to reveal to us latent unbelief. You know, it's easy it's easy to believe on the Lord or say you believe on the Lord when it is, uh, when the, the waters are sort of like glass, right? And you're just smooth sailing across. And it's easy to say, I trust the Lord. But really that trust is tested when the storm comes. Do I really trust the Lord when suddenly my bank account has nothing in it and I am looking day to day for my daily bread? Do I really trust in the Lord then? You will find out. And so the Lord sends trials to reveal our distrust and to also have us be drawn into a more intimate walk with him. You know, a few weeks ago when our brethren gave their testimonies at the Thanksgiving service, I couldn't help but note that for each of them, their faith in the Lord was stronger after the trials had come. Before the trials, their faith wasn't as strong as when the Lord had taken them through it. Isn't that what we saw with Job's own trial and what it revealed to us, right? In fact, you want to understand the book of Job. Job, you turn to the book of James, don't you? What does the book of James teach us in James 5.11? Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful or full of pity and of tender mercy. The unbeliever reads the book of Job and goes, What are you talking about? The Lord is very pitiful, full of pity and of tender mercy. But the believer and Job himself comes to the end of his trial, sees the mercy and pity of God. More than when uh, the trial began. You know, when a trial begins, we often say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And when we are delivered safely, we must admit the Lord is very pitiful and full of tender mercy. So how can we remedy this lack of faith in the Lord? Let me offer four ways to you. Not exhaustive, but maybe can be a help to your faith. And the first is to really keep in your heart the character of the Lord as revealed in the Word of God. To know it well, to know it intimately, so that you would never think or say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Instead, you would plead his compassion, his mercy, his forgiveness, his grace. Hide in your heart his character from texts like Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and to the fourth generation. Know your God. Know your God. Know your Christ. You're going to find out in the last heading, they didn't know their Christ. 
Look at the Word of God to know God and know Christ. As you heard last week, where is the Word to reside? It is to reside in your heart so that when the boat comes, you don't have to, when the storm comes, you're not fumbling through your Bible. Let me find some place here where it'll testify to the goodness of God, but you will know it. You will know it when there's no light on and the storm rages. You don't have your phone. You don't have your Bible. You will know the goodness of God. Recall the goodness of God by faith when sight threatens to drown your soul in despondency. And you know truths like this, right? Uh, the Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You go to text like that, immediately your heart will. Second is to not just know the character of the Lord, but to recall how his character has been expressed by his works. The disciples clearly here, right? We have not been uh, uh, too far from his demonstration of his love and grace and compassion and even power. But the disciples had forgotten so soon, so quickly. We do too. I was thinking about this even, right? This is also a very big Bible and one of the, the evils of a diminished view of the Old Testament is that we do not remember and recall the many manifold mercies of God, the constancy of God to His people from trial to trial. But that is what Psalms 105 through 107 have been reminding us these past months, hasn't it? So we forget the wealth of history that Samuel knew when he said these words, Hitherto hath the Lord helped us. You need to recall God's works in the Bible and be comforted by his character. That is all that Samuel could do when the Philistines seemed to destroy men, women, and children. Hitherto hath the Lord helped us, and so he will ever help us. You must know that. All his works demonstrate his love for us. And as you see testimony after testimony after testimony, you remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he has been to us, he will always be to us. And we praise God for that. Then you can read through church history and you will see his love time and time again. Then you will read your own history, so to speak, and see his faithfulness to you in particular. And you will say, so soon in the boat, hitherto hath the Lord helped us. This is what they should have said. The Lord has always helped us and the Lord will especially as you survey that greatest work of the Lord, his cross, where he has taken us through fire and water and delivered us. And when the next trial comes, you will be prepared as Samuel was. You also remember that your Lord is sovereign. These are all his works. This storm was his work. It didn't just come out of the blue. Amos 3.6, if calamity comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? He is the master of storms and seas and every providence. There is not a single thing he hasn't decreed, child of God. We saw that in Psalm 107, so I'll leave that there. But such spiritual exercises and meditations are grossly neglected by us, friends. You heard in the preparatory service before last communion, Song 2-3, I sat down under his shadow with great delight and his fruit was sweet to my taste. What are you doing when you go before the Lord in your devotional time? Are you sitting under Christ's shadow? Are you tasting of his fruit in the word of God? Are you in prayer and meditation on the word? Are you like Nathaniel, who sat under the fig tree with great delight, spending time in holy exercises with the Lord? 
would this not be something pleasant for you? Would this not be a pleasant time with the Lord to sit and think on the Lord's mercies? You could even orient your week in such a way, even if you don't have time for this particular exercise every day, though I think we would if we would cut out other things. But could you imagine spending at least one, two, three days a week thinking on the Lord's mercies, discovering them out of the Bible, and to say, today I will sit as Nathaniel did and think on the Lord, what he has been, what he is, and what he will ever be, my God and my Lord. Your soul will have such a pleasant interchange with Christ as you meditate on the Word and His works. It's not mystical in a kind of a New Age way, but it is profoundly spiritual. The Word, your meditation on it, and prayer will all meet together and strengthen your soul. Third is to know the promises of the Gospel. The disciples forgot Christ's promise. They will get to the other side. We are going to the other side. That was the promise for them that day. And I've been taken recently by how much of our forefathers' ministries were rooted in ministering God's promises to his people. The Erskine brothers, you may know them, the seceders, they built their ministry upon ministering God's promises to his people. And their ministry is so greatly blessed to the Lord. Ralph Erskine once asked rhetorically, tell me, one case that the promise does not reach. Saying one case in your life where there is not a promise from God. And he said there is such a variety of promises in the word. He likened them, and uh, this is a, his, his role as being a fisher of men, but he likened them to different hooks a fisherman can use to catch different fish. And that's what he likened it to. He gave many examples of how varied they are. Erskine asked or said, Do you say, child of God, I am a poor, insignificant worm. He says there is a hook of promise for you in Isaiah 41, 14. Fear not, thou worm, Jacob, and I will help thee. He asked, are you poor and needy? He said there is a hook for you in Isaiah 41, 17. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue faileth for thirst, I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Two examples, just a few verses from each other. And he said, if one promise does not fit you, go to another until you find the one that is suited. Even in the depths of your sinfulness, beloved, and you cry, Lord, I perish in my sin. What hook, what promise will you grab a hold of? There are several. Does one come to mind? What of 1 Timothy 1.15? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. Is that not a hook for your soul in the depth of your sinfulness? Is that not a promise from God that Christ came into the world to save sinners? And your soul, as it is hooked by that promise, will find repose and rest. For maybe further study, there is an old work by Edward Lay called A Treatise on Divine Promises that teaches you how to use the promises, a wonderful work, but also has a remarkable table with the promises he found cataloged by books of the Bible so that you can uh, go through each book of the Bible and see promise after promise after promise. You can find it out online. uh, I think Ebo, Early English uh, Books Online, will have it for you. Well, anyway, that will be another sermon. What you must do is you must know and hold each word of promise in your heart and apply each to the trials of your life. Remember also 
that Jesus Christ, the one who was in the boat that day, he is the one who fulfills every promise of God, isn't he? 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him are yea and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. And so your Savior is so sufficient, also is the one who gives to you, or rather fulfills for you, all the promises of God. And so, if he has done that, how could we ever say, Master, carest thou not that we perish, when he fulfills the promises? Fourthly, I would say, Humble yourself before God. Part of the problem is we have too high a view of ourselves when we must have a much lower view of ourselves and a much lower view of our own ability. And we must have a higher view of Christ's sovereignty and power. It's worth noting here, and I thought on this as I meditated on the text, the disciples were experienced sailors. The Lord brings to them a trial in the very area that they have such great skill, doesn't he? Why? To show them they cannot depend on themselves. You will think, I can navigate through life with my own skill, cunning, and whatever else. But the storm will come so that you might see you depend on God. You depend on Christ and not your flesh. So humble yourself. Have a low view of yourself and trust the Lord will deliver you. Put those four things into practice and you will do uh, well. But now also consider our Lord here in the boat. He is not only the one who gives the promise, he's not only the one who fulfills the promise, but he is also the pattern of the perfect man, isn't he? Here is the man who rests in God. Here is the man who rested in the truth. He demonstrates for you what the man of faith ought to be like. This was actually a dispute between the, the, the papists and the Protestant, the reformers. They, the papists, I think, denied that uh, Jesus Christ, or some of their doctors did anyway, that Jesus Christ exercised faith because they said uh, he didn't need to be saved from anything. And he didn't, of course. But Jesus Christ exercises faith, not to be saved, but he exercises faith and hope in God as a man, Right? He shows trust, his human soul. This is so important for us, beloved. We cannot be saved if he did not exercise faith. His human soul perfectly trusted in God. Peter applies Psalm 16 to him in Acts 2.26, which says, my flesh shall rest in hope. Jesus exercised hope so that when the seas raged and stormed, the man who trusted in God perfectly, the one man who did, was peacefully sleeping, wasn't he, in the boat? Psalm 4, 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me, what? Dwell in safety. That's our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the faith to cultivate, friends, where you can sleep in peace, trusting in the Lord when storms come. And that will not just be for your well-being, but also for the glory of God. It is glorifying of God when you trust Him, when the hull of the boat is being battered and you're taking on water, to say, though He slay me, yet will I trust in Him. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For what? Thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. It's not, it's not the, the strength of my boat. It's not the fortitude of my will. For thou, Lord, only 
makest me dwell in safety. And so we see Jesus in the boat then, peaceful, even as the boat takes on water. And that's not us, at least not always. But this is what God requires of us, believer. So to look on this scene, as we have said so many times in Luke's gospel, is to see your own righteousness in Jesus Christ, believer. Be glad for another promise that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And you see here Jesus' perfect, unshaking trust in the Lord. And if you have faith and trust and hope in him, that is imputed to you who believe. Because we don't always have this kind of trust and hope. And so Christ gives us his own righteousness. Praise God for another precious and great promise in the gospel. Well, as Peter was there in the boat, it is worth noting, he would later write in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love in whom though now you see him not yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith. What's the faith? What's the destination of faith? Even the salvation of your souls. Trials of faith, Peter says, and I don't have time, my time is slipping away. You can read through that this Sabbath. Trials of faith purify your faith as gold is, is purified in the furnace. So that your trust grows, your love for Jesus grows, that you say more and more as he is with you in the storm, I love one I have never seen with my eyes, but is more real to me than than my nearest kin. And the trial shows you what what can what person, what entity, what what can I depend on more than Jesus Christ? Who could the disciples cry to that day? Could they cry out to Caesar? Could they cry out to each other? They could only cry out to Jesus, and and they learned that that day. And when he quelled the storm, they saw no one else was worthy of such faith. And when the trial is over, you can say of Jesus, whom having not seen, I love, in whom though now I see him not yet believing, I rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And I am more assured that when the trial began, I will receive the end of my faith, even the salvation of my soul. I will get to that destination Jesus has promised for me. And so, let's conclude then with the disciples' words. What manner of man is this? As we see who their faith ought to be in. Verse 25, And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. With a word, you have heard Jesus Christ Rebuke the storm, and it ceased, and there was a calm. He had turned the raging storm into peace. The winds and water obeyed him. And if Christ asked, where is your faith? The disciples asked, what manner of man is this? This is an important awakening for them, realizing just who Jesus Christ is. This is the key for our faith, friends. This is the key for our trust and hope. Faith is not attached to uh, faith, let me put it this way, faith that is not attached to a worthy object is utterly useless. The object of our faith is what is important, not just believing. The object of our faith is what saves us. 
Faith is moored, if I may use nautical terms. Faith is anchored to its object. The strength of our faith does not save us. Even the weakest faith, the faith that cries out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, that is saving faith. So long as the object of faith is correct, it is faith's object that matters at the end of the day, Jesus Christ. Strong faith in a false God does not save, it is damnable. But weak faith in Jesus Christ saves to the uttermost because Jesus saves to the uttermost, not our faith. So what manner of man is Jesus, the one worthy of faith? Let's answer that to strengthen our faith. And there are two parts to the answer. The first part is he is very God. And the second part is he is very man. First, very God. Note the fear of the disciples when they said, He, that is Jesus, commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. Why were they in fear of what Jesus did? The key is that the storm obeyed him. The storm obeyed him. You know, if Jesus was as Moses, they would not have feared him. They would not have feared him. Uh, Hear how Exodus 14.21 described the parting of the Red Sea. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. Who did the wind and waters obey? Was it Moses? No, it was the Lord. It was the Lord. Psalm 106.9 tells us, He, that is Jehovah, rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. But in the boat... The disciples saw Jesus Christ directly command the winds and the water, and they obeyed him. It dawned on them. One greater than Moses is here in the boat. Jehovah had tabernacled with them in Jesus Christ. They had sung enough psalms to know Psalm 65, 7. Being girded with power, which stilleth the noise of the seas. This is spoken of or sung of Jehovah. They sung Psalm 89.9, as we did before the sermon, which speaks of Jehovah. Thou rulest the raging of the sea. When the waves thereof arise, thou stillest them. The ruler of the seas was with them in the boat. And they knew it. And then there was our Psalm of the Month, which they had sung so many times in both temple and synagogue. Psalm 107.26-29. Their soul is melted because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out unto the Lord in their trouble, and He bringeth them out of their distresses. He maketh the storm a calm, so that the waves thereof are still. In the boat, in Jesus Christ, it dawned on them as they said, What manner of man is this? They began to see that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Him bodily. If they had known it, And uh, time being short, I'll I'll put this thought here. If they had known this, even though he was asleep in, in his humanity, they would have understood his divinity never sleeps. Psalm 121.4, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. That is why you can lay your head on your pillow and say, I will rest in peace tonight. Because while you're asleep, it is not on you to carry you into the morning. It is on the Lord who never slumbers and sleeps. 
And I thought on all these psalms, right? Psalm after psalm is coming to me. I thought, what a sad thing. So few sing them today and cannot identify their Savior. So rich with Christ. So full of testimonies towards Him. That said, our faith is in Jesus Christ as the God-man. And in His divinity, He always keeps us. Part of His rebuke towards them, where is your faith? Must have been because they did not believe He was divine yet. When they saw him sleeping, right? Otherwise, when they saw him sleeping, would they ask, do you not care about us? He's, they're thinking, your care for me is not active because you're asleep. You don't care for me because you are slumbering in peace over there while water is coming in. But if they had known he was divine, they would have known that he never slumbers and he never sleeps. And he always cares. Some of our men spoke with Jehovah's Witnesses yesterday at the square And of course, they had to contend for the divinity of Christ. If Christ is not divine, how could we exercise faith in a mere creature? Could such a Christ save us? No. Can't even hear us if he isn't divine. We cannot trust a mere man or angel to keep his eye on us and care for us. But because Jesus is divine, his eye, his care, just as it is on the sparrow, is never off of us in the storm. He was caring for them, even though his humanity slept. Their lack of faith was that in Jesus, God was with them. God with us, Emmanuel. But if this man, Jesus, was very God, let us never forget the other half of the answer to what manner of man is this. He is very man as well. And as he sleeps in the storm, you see it. If by faith to look on Jesus is to see his divinity that never slumbers and you are cheered by that, let us also be cheered that he is also very man. And you see in this uh, this uh, narrative that he knows the human experience, doesn't he? He knows human frailty. He knows human limits. He knows human temptations. He knows the agony of the human soul. He knows pain and he knows suffering. He has felt our weakness as a contrast to his invincible divine nature. For verily, he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore what? In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be what? A merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor or help them that are tempted. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. Because he is very man. He is very merciful and faithful to us. Hebrews 4, 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. His humanity is meant to send you to Jesus in your trials as one who sympathizes with you. In trials, you harbor a suspicion. Does God care? Does God care? Does God know my trials? How can the Almighty know what it is like to hunger and thirst? Which, by the way, it's a sinful thing to say that of the Almighty. But he is drawing you to himself through his humanity in Jesus Christ, the God-man. Will you see the fatigue of the Son of God when he slept? Will you see in your Bible the Son of God tempted by the devil? 
Will you see the Son of God at the edge of man's limits when he sweated blood in stress and strain and sorrow? Will you see the Son of God say, My soul is sorrowful even unto death? Will you see the Son of God die in the human nature? Will you see the sympathy of the Son of God in humanity? And will you see his power in divinity? Oh, how our faith is strengthened when you know the answer to the question, what manner of man is this? The God-man, my mediator, my savior. And because he is both God and man, he could atone for your sin, believer. He suffered in your nature and he was upheld by his divine nature and his blood's worth as counted as the blood of God gives full and total atonement for your sin. Who else can you trust? Who else could care for you but this Jesus? So he asks again, where is your faith? Where is your faith today? Where could your faith be? Where must your faith be? If not in this Jesus, the God-man. What hope do we have if this Jesus was not for us? Say, my faith is in the God-man mediator, Jesus Christ, Son of God, my Lord and my God. And the text says, they feared. The fear of God came upon them. Once they feared the storm. Now they rightly feared God. They grew in fear and awe and reverence for this Jesus And when our faith grows, we've talked about this recently, so does our fear, so does our reverence. As the Lord becomes greater and greater, more holy, more sovereign, more powerful in our eyes, more holy. And if you fear storms and trials today, if you would instead fear the Lord, you would have nothing to fear at all but him. Let the fear of the Lord grow instead of the fear of everything else under the sun, and that fear will banish all other fears. The Lord said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, 28. Well, the disciples, they made it to the other side of the lake, and they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. They arrived exactly where Jesus said they would go, and he delivered them safely. He always keeps his word. What was their storm now in hindsight? Was it nothing more than a light and momentary affliction? Truly. They thought their entire world was about to perish, but they did not perish. Jesus delivered them. Believers, so once again, never forget, he has set a destination for your soul, and he has set the course of the boat to glory. And by faith, you must say, I will get there. Why? Because he will do it, not me. He will do it. He will deliver me. And where the Lord is now, so will I also be. He will deliver me safely through every storm. And you must believe as Paul did when he faced his final trial in Nero's jail. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This was a man who believed in the Lord and trusted in him, who did not cry out in the jail cell as he's about to be beheaded, 
Master, carest thou not that I perish? But he says, the Lord shall deliver me and will preserve me unto where? His heavenly kingdom. And he did. The Lord has revealed, where I am, you will be also. But the secret things belong to the Lord. Every storm and every trial. Believe the Lord will preserve you unto his heavenly kingdom, not your skill in navigating life, but because of the captain of your salvation, Jesus. So until he brings you into his blessed presence in that heavenly kingdom, sail on with the promise found in Romans eight thirty-eight and 39, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is located where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now there is a hook for your soul when it is tempted to say, Master, carest thou not that I perish? May the Lord preserve us until the day we arrive in the heavenly kingdom and calls us home. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. Our Father and our God, Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. That is our prayer. Lord, banish our sinful lack of trust in thee, O God. Father, help us believe that you will deliver us through every trial and every storm that as our faith is set in Jesus Christ, we have the Redeemer, who is very God and very man, full of the power and love of God and the sympathy and fellow feeling of a man, so that he truly cares for us. Help us believe all the precious promises of God in the gospel. And we do pray, Father, that you would deliver us. Every uh, person here, Father, who is a believer, we pray that you would give them comfort this day out of the gospel message from this text, and we pray for those who do not yet believe, Father, that they would find for themselves that pearl of great price, the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is worthy of the utmost faith and trust and hope and adoration. Help them understand, wherever their trust is, that nothing can compare to trusting in the God-man who alone can deliver. O Lord, would you do this and bless our assembly? We ask for the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Amen.